Well, friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me in them to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we're uh, continuing a series that we began, our summer series called How to Pray, where we're looking at uh, Jesus's instructions um, on how to pray, how we as God's people are called to pray. And we looked at the Lord's Prayer last week. Um, we looked at just one part of it in a sermon entitled, How to Pray as Jesus Prayed. And we discussed that praying is choosing the good portion. Uh, praying is not a religious duty we offer God. Uh, praying is a means of grace God offers to us so that we might commune with him, that we might know him and walk with him. Today, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer uh, and its content. And the sermon is entitled, How to Pray as Jesus Taught. And what we'll discover is that praying is uh, an expression of dependence on God. That, that's what praying is, an expression of dependence on <sighs> upon the Lord. And so if you are able, I invite you to stand with me as an act of worship. Our standing shows reverence for God's word as we read and receive it. And hear now from our gracious father who speaks to us, Luke 11, beginning with verse one. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer once more? Kind Father, we experience your kindness in so many ways. Uh, we see it most clearly in the sending of your son, Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, who died that we might be forgiven. We also experience your kindness and how you meet us and speak to us through your word. And so would you give to us your Holy Spirit that he would illuminate the truths of scripture, that it would go beyond uh, mere intellectual uh, understanding, but into deep heart transformation form us to be prayerful people, praying as Jesus taught us here in the Lord's Prayer. In Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, let me begin by painting a scene for you. Sarah is in community group, and they just had an amazing dinner, a great sermon discussion, and now they're breaking out into smaller prayer groups. And as each person in her group goes around sharing an update about life and then giving a prayer request, Sarah's getting a little nervous. Uh, she doesn't know what she should share. Um, well, she kind of knows what she should share, but she's not sure if she should trust the people uh, to share it with them. And finally, the turn gets around to her and she just opens up and says, guys, I need prayer for my prayer life. I find it really difficult to pray. I don't make time to prioritize it. I know it's important, but it just slips my mind and I do other things instead. I guess I'm asking that you would pray for more discipline and diligence, that I would be prayerful. Well, without expecting it, everyone in their head, or everyone in the group with their heads lowered begins to nod in agreement as if to say, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And finally, one person speaks up and suggests, well, how about we form an accountability group? Let's text each other and we'll remind each other to pray. And the group excitedly agrees. And for a few weeks, people are praying regularly, but soon... Everyone's lives gets busy again and the text starts slowing down and the accountability begins to come to a halt. And not long after, everyone is back to their normal routines 
and prayerlessness continues to abound. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Maybe you've been a part of groups that uh, something like this, some kind of cycle similar to this has happened, or, or maybe you've been like Sarah yourself, and, and you ask in your small groups, can you pray for my prayer life? You know, it's sad, but it's true that prayerlessness is often our default setting, not prayerfulness. And I think most of us would agree in here that praying is difficult. Praying is a religious act of devotion that is really hard to do. So the question is, how do we overcome it? How do we actually become prayerful people? My thought is this, as long as you believe prayer is some work that you must do, if you believe prayer requires simply more diligence or more discipline, then prayer will always be a struggle. It's not until you understand prayer is an expression of great dependence on God that then you realize it's not diligence you need, it's not discipline you need, it's dependence that you need. It's desperation that you need. Just as you need to breathe oxygen in order to live, you'll discover that you need to pray to God in order to live. And it's only when you come to that point of understanding your sense of need and dependence that prayer will become natural. Prayer will become organic. You don't have to tell yourself to breathe. You don't need diligence and discipline in breathing. In fact, it takes more work to hold your breath and not breathe than breathe. In the same way as we understand our great need for God, you'll start realizing, oh, it's actually harder to not pray. I need to pray because I need God. Well, how do we grasp our great sense of need for the Lord? Well, the Lord's prayer helps us. Here's our point of focus, our meditation this morning. It's this, in the Lord's prayer, Jesus teaches petitions that lead you to postures of dependence on God. And so the Lord's Prayer is a series of petitions, but if you learn those petitions, they actually help you adopt a posture of dependence upon the Lord. Now, in order to understand the Lord's Prayer, you need to understand two things about it. The Lord's Prayer is at least two things. It's a model and a mold. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Lord's Prayer was a model prayer that Jesus used to teach his disciples how to pray. It was like a teaching aid, a training aid. Pray according to this structure, according to this pattern. And so it's a model for us to learn. But the Lord's Prayer is also a mold. Because if you pray according to the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, if you faithfully engage in praying as Jesus has instructed you to pray, you'll realize over time that your heart begins to change. You begin to be molded, formed, and fashioned into the one who loves and delights to lift these petitions up. And so, you know, just think about the way dental braces work. Some of you may have had braces growing up. Some of you may have them now. But the way braces work is that they begin to exert pressure on your teeth and on your jaws. And you keep them for, what, several months, maybe a year, maybe a little bit more. Because as the braces are on your teeth and they're slowly pushing down, giving pressure on your teeth, your your teeth begin to change positions, don't they? They begin to get realigned. And so what's happening in the process is your teeth begin to aligned to the position of the braces. Your teeth adjust to the braces. The braces don't adjust to the position of your teeth. And I say this because in the same way, praying according to the Lord's prayer has a way of adjusting your heart to the things you just prayed about. Praying the Lord's prayer, not just reciting out of rote memorization, but understanding the petitions and the postures that God is giving us 
begins to make it so that the petitions we pray actually become our personal priorities. And one of the ways that happens is that the five petitions we see here in Luke 11 give you five postures of neediness and dependence upon God. And those are the five things we're going to talk about. These are the postures of being a child, a servant, a beggar, a sinner, and a wanderer. The Lord's Prayer forces you to adopt these five petitions, these five postures through the petitions, and you learn great neediness and dependence. So let's get started. Posture number one, I am a child of God. This posture follows the petition in verse two. Jesus says, if you want to pray the Lord's Prayer, this is how you start. Father, hallowed be your name. Now, we already talked about adoption. We talked about the privilege of calling God Father. But today we're focusing on the fact that when you call God Father, you are admitting and confessing about yourself that you are a child. You're a child in his family. And so as long as you spend the rest of your life calling on God as Father, you are reminding yourself, adopting a posture of being his child. And what's characteristic of children? Neediness and dependence. Now, this is hard to swallow. Some of you, as I look out here, are very accomplished people. You have achievements and accolades under your belt. Others of you are very, um, you, you enjoy much success. You have status. You have significance in your company, among your peers. A lot of you are very capable and competent. And to the world, when they look at you, you may seem to have it all together In fact, people come to you and ask you for advice and they ask you questions and they ask for your help and they ask for direction. They depend on you. They look to you. And so we fall into the trap of believing that, no, I'm not needy and dependent. People are needy and dependent upon me. But the world's assessment of you means nothing to God. You know, because it doesn't matter how many years you've lived. It doesn't matter how much experience you have under your belt. It doesn't matter how many direct reports you have reporting to you. It doesn't matter how many children or grandchildren you have. It doesn't matter how many people seek you out. In God's presence, you're a child. That's your core identity. Of all the five postures we just mentioned, child, servant, beggar, sinner, wanderer, only one of those identities will continue into heaven, and that's being a child of God. And the sooner you realize that this is my core identity, my core posture, the faster you'll actually begin to flee to God in prayer. You know, uh, last week, a bunch of buddies of mine that I went to seminary with 15 years ago, we had a reunion. And so we all drove to Jersey where we met, and we had a great lunch. People brought their families, and there were a bunch of little kids playing around. And after we ate our lunch, somebody broke out the popsicles, and everyone was excited. And from across the room, uh, I saw this one little kid holding their popsicle, and they didn't know how to open it, and they looked extremely sad. And so they they were looking at it like, I want this, but I don't know how to get access to it. And so they start asking the older kids around them, can you open this for me? Can you open this for me? And uh, some of the older kids were like playing a game, and so they brushed them off and said, just go ask your mom. Like, don't bother us. Ask your mom. And the kid heard that, and without even knowing where his mom was, just started screaming, mommy, mommy, help me open, help me open. And he's just running around. What is, it, what is that a picture of? Neediness independence. Listen, he didn't say to the other kids, no, I, I only go to my parents when it comes to the important things. No, uh, you know, I, I only approach, you know, mom and dad when, when something major is involved. 
No, he ran to his parent with the same kind of urgency somebody gets if they were to cut their thumb off. He was running around screaming, calling out for help. All for what? To open a popsicle. You see, friends, until you realize that before God, you're a child in his family, you're not going to pray until you absolutely need to because you have no other choice. And maybe that's the way some of you view prayer. You only come to God when he's your last resort. But you need to realize in God's eyes, you are his child, not just while you're here on earth, but even in heaven. It's not like as soon as you die and you go to heaven, it's like turning 18 where all of a sudden you're independent and you have new freedoms. Even in heaven, you will continue for eternity to be a child of God. And we enjoy that privilege now by learning to pray to him. We're needy. We're dependent upon him. And so we come to him in prayer. So praying, Father, hallowed be your name. The petition puts you in a posture of being God's child. Here's the second posture. I am a servant. I am a servant. And this petition comes, this posture comes from the petition in verse 2, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now, uh, we already mentioned this last week, but Luke's account of the Lord's prayers, uh, the abbreviated version of Matthew's. And so let me read Matthew 6, verse 10, where Jesus kind of expands on it a bit more. And in Matthew 6, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when you're praying that God's kingdom come, what are you saying about God? You're saying that he's a king because only kings have kingdoms. The question is, if you pray your kingdom come, God is a king, well, then who are you? Now, most of us like to think we're the king of our own lives. We like to have our own little realms where we exercise sovereignty, our rule and reign and control us over these little kingdoms, this domain of work, my own children, this part of my life. We think we're kings. But in God's kingdom, we're not kings. We're not his political advisors. We're not part of his inner council. We're not the general of his army. In God's kingdom, we are servants. And as servants, our job and role is to not push forth our agenda and our purposes and our plans and declare to God, God, let my will be done. Our purposes in God's kingdom is to say, Lord, what do you desire from my life? How can the things I have and the things I steward my family, my career, my finances, my friendships. How do I steward that to bring you glory? It should be our desire, dear friends, that at the end of this life, we're striving toward hearing the commendation of the master. If you know that parable in Matthew 25, where Jesus says, what should you long to hear on the final day? Well done, good and faithful servant. Because we've aligned our hearts and our desires to his. You know, too many Christians are guilty of making decisions in their life as if God isn't king. I mean, how many of you are guilty of this? That you create a timeline, you create plans, you have all of these things working in progress, you make decisions, you're trying to figure out what's best about yourself, all the while you've never once thought about God. And then, and then to make matters worse, we all have the audacity, don't we, to make all these plans and decisions where we don't consult God. And at the end, we commit that to prayer. We say, Lord, would you bless this? But we've never once submitted it to God and said, Lord, I'm a servant in your kingdom. I need your wisdom. How am I supposed to steward all the great things you've given me? My future ambitions, my studies, my schedule, my calendar, 
how can I use this to serve you? And instead of leaning on him and depending on his wisdom, we make our own decisions. We say, Lord, let my will be done. Let my will be done. And then we ask God to bless it. Dear friends, when you understand that you're a servant in his kingdom, you realize you depend on God's leading. And so you pray regularly, submitting all of these things to the Lord. Posture number three, I am a beggar. I am a beggar. This posture follows the petition in verse three where Jesus teaches us to pray, give us each day our daily bread. Regularly asking for daily bread has a way of reminding you that God is the provider. And you are a beggar who only receives what you have by the gracious hand of God. Now, I want to be clear here. By saying you're a beggar, that doesn't negate you being his child. It doesn't mean you've somehow become an orphan. The metaphor is changing here because the point is when you pray and you ask for daily bread, you're recognizing, you're admitting, I am poor and needy and God is rich and generous. And so I daily depend on him for everything. Now, none of us want to admit we're beggars. None of us want to admit that we need something from other people. Have you ever been to like Aldi's or Aldi's or however you say it? And then the tricky thing about that is you go and in order to get a cart, you need to put the quarter in it. And there was one time that I went and I didn't know that. And I needed to get, uh, I think it was for the boxes of love. I needed to get all of these groceries and I didn't have a quarter. And so I couldn't get a cart, but I was too proud because I didn't want to seem like a beggar asking people for a quarter. And so I was attempting to hold, you know, all of these apple sauces and mashed potatoes in my hands. Why? Because nobody wants to be a beggar. No one wants to stand outside of Aldi saying, can you give me a quarter? Can you give me a quarter? And yet the daily prayer of Lord, give us This day, our daily bread is the posture of saying, God, I need from you. I need from you because you're the one who graciously gives. Remember Israel in the Old Testament. Israel in the Old Testament uh, left Exodus or left uh, Egypt, excuse me, in the great Exodus and they were wandering the desert. And as they were wandering in the desert, they were hungry. And so God provided miraculously manna from heaven, right? The mysterious bread from heaven. And God said, you can eat as much as you want. I will pour all this out every morning. I'll renew it. You can gather as much as you want, but there's only one condition. And that you can't gather more than what you're going to eat for that day. And so if it's Monday morning and you wake up and you do your stretches and you collect and you try to collect Monday to Friday, what you'll discover on Tuesday morning is that all the rest of the manna is spoiled. Now, why did God do this? What was the purpose of setting it up this way? God was teaching Israel that they needed to rely on him every single day, not just when they ran out of food. God was teaching Israel that they were needy every single day. They weren't just needy when they were lacking. You see, most of us don't feel our neediness because here in America in the 21st century, we have so much. And so we don't realize because we don't have great needs, material needs, major things we're lacking. We convince ourselves that we don't need the Lord. But the daily prayer of give us each day our daily bread is saying, Lord, even the things I have, I know come from your gracious hand. And so friends, adopting the posture of a beggar helps you sense not just your need, but then God's great provision, not just your poverty, but God's riches, not just your dependence, but God's generosity. And so you pray every day and it's an act of slaying your own arrogance, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, praying this prayer every day 
causes you to cast aside and crucify your ego and your pride and become needy and dependent before God. And so we pray, give us each day our daily bread because we assume the posture of the beggar in his kingdom. Fourth posture, I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. And this posture follows the petition in verse three, and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, first, you pray for your physical needs, the the daily bread. Now you pray for your spiritual needs. And he's reminding us that every time you come into God's presence, no matter how spiritual you feel, no matter what spiritual high you're on, when you come into God's presence, you come and you stand before him as a sinner. That apart from the gospel, any and every time you come before the Lord, you can't help but come in sin. Now, of course, there's good news. There's good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ that Christ has taken your sins through his sacrifice on the cross, that God no longer is turned off by you. He's not disgusted by you. He's not impatient at you or annoyed at you. But he welcomes you to come. And he says, your sins are forgiven. You can come into my presence. And we know this because when Jesus died on the cross, he uttered um, three really famous words, one in Greek, it is finished, tetelestai. Jesus uttered those words on the cross saying, My salvation for you is done and complete. You can add nothing to it. You are forgiven of your sins if you come and believe on the Lord Jesus. Okay, well, I've come to believe in the Lord Jesus, so I'm forgiven of all my sins. So then why do I daily need to pray, forgive us our sins? I mean, didn't Jesus already forgive them? Well, daily coming to the Lord and asking for forgiveness helps you recognize your deep need of God's grace every day. It, one, protects you from becoming arrogant and self-righteous, judgmental and critical over others. Because it reminds you, I'm still a work in progress. I don't have it all together. I'm an imperfect person. But then it reminds me, God's grace and mercy are new every morning for me. And so if you don't recognize your daily sins, if you don't ask God for forgiveness regularly, then you know what will happen to your understanding of grace? It's one of the saddest things that can happen in a Christian's life. His grace becomes obscure and vague and unfamiliar. Soon after, the grace that we sing about in church is just a distant memory something you once received long ago when you came to Jesus, but not a present treasure that you cherish every day. And some of you are like this. You did repent once. You confessed your sins years ago, maybe at one of those youth retreats that he said that in the announcements you attended. But because you don't daily come and lay those sins down before him, You have no present sense of his grace. And if you have no present sense of his grace, you have no sense of your need for his grace. But the daily confession is receiving the daily affirmations of God saying, I love you and I forgive you. You need to hear that. It's like two people who are married, two spouses, and one refuses to say, I love you. They never say it. When confronted, they say, well, my actions show it. Oh, I said it once. I said it on the, remember the day we got married? I I said, I love you. And one of the other spouts complains, you you never say this to me anymore. And they say, 
What do you mean? I mean, I married you. That's like the greatest expression of my love for you. If you need the affirmation of it, then like look at the wedding video. Take out the photo album. Pull out the marriage certificate. Isn't that proof that I love you? That would be a disaster, friends. In the same way, when you don't recognize your sins as something to confess, you don't go to God, then you won't receive the daily affirmations he has for you, where he daily declares to you when you confess, he says, I love you so much, I sent my one and only son to die for you. And you receive it and you understand, this is the love and grace of God that I need daily. Praying this petition reminds you you're a sinner in daily need of God's grace. Fifth and last, the posture of being a wanderer. I am a wanderer. And this posture follows the last petition in verse 3. And lead us not into temptation. Why do we need to ask God not to lead us into temptation? Well, you need to recognize that on your own, you're like a sheep that is prone to stray and wander from the flock. We all love that line that so accurately describes all of us from that famous hymn. Do you know it? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. These friends, when you're confronted with the wandering nature of your heart, you realize how much you need to pray because you need God to keep you from straying. And I don't just mean straying from the faith. I mean straying, straying daily from him in our thoughts, in our actions, in our affections. You know how easy it is? I mean, if I were to put you in an empty room and took away your phone, <laughs> then you'll discover how easily you stray. Because in your boredom, where do your fantasies go? In your boredom, where does your daydreaming go? Where do your thoughts go? That's indicating what's truly ruling your heart, the thing that's pulling you toward it. How easy is it for us in our minds and our hearts to drift from the Lord? So finally admitting, Lord, I'm so prone to wander and stray and be led into temptation. Lord, would you keep me close to yourself? Keep me from wandering. And so you pray depending on God to keep you. It reminds me of a well-respected man who was known to live a life of incredible uh, prayer. And he was asked once to do a seminar on prayer at a large Christian conference. And he began that conference. It was packed. So many people were there. But he began with a humble confession. He admitted before this large crowd that despite his greatest efforts, he could never in all of his life pray for more than 15 minutes. And when he said that, everyone was in shock. And they thought to themselves, well, then this man's a fraud. This man's so unspiritual, only praying for 15 minutes. I can easily do that. Well, that was until he later clarified. He said, friends, it's true. I can't pray for more than 15 minutes at a time. But it's also true, I can't go more than 15 minutes without praying. You see, friends, why? Because his heart is so prone to wander and he needs the great shepherd to lead him with his rod and his staff over and over, back to him again and again. Do you realize how fickle your hearts are? How easy it is to forget the one who gave his life for you? When you realize your great sense of need and dependence on him, you pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Lord, keep me by your side. Because I cannot do that on my own. You see, friends, if you pray as Jesus taught in the Lord's prayer, 
you lay down the petitions, it begins to mold you into these postures of neediness and dependence. Who am I before the Lord? I'm a child. I'm a servant. I'm a beggar. I'm a sinner. I'm a wanderer. And once you grasp that, prayer is no longer optional. Prayer is necessary. Prayer is the way you breathe as a Christian. How can you grow in your prayer life? You don't need more discipline. You don't need more diligence. You need more dependence and desperation upon God. Now, here's the thing. I understand it's so uncomfortable admitting that about yourself. It's so uncomfortable to own up to this degree of weakness because nobody wants to appear before the world to be pathetic and pitiful. Nobody wants to admit that about themselves. And so we refuse to pray. We want to be independent. We want to be autonomous. We want to be able to sustain ourselves. And the reason we feel that way is because we buy into the lie of the world that says weakness is a shameful thing. But do you understand that in God's eyes, weakness is the way to power and strength? According to God's upside-down kingdom, weakness is the way. So although you may not want to delight in your weakness, you actually begin to delight in the weakness of another who through his weakness saved the world. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who through the weakness of his life and through the weakness of his death on a cross was slain for our sins and through his weakness brought into your life the power of God to save you from your sins. That's the startling reality. We hate our weakness, but we also love the weakness of Christ because through his weakness, comes the good news of the gospel. This is why Paul declares in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you want to embrace Jesus, you're embracing him in his weakness. You delight in it and it helps you actually begin to embrace your own weakness. You know, Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 12 to then declare, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of what? Of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The posture of weakness for Jesus meant the power of salvation for you and me. So when your confidence becomes in that Christ, being weak and needy and dependent is no longer a shameful thing. It becomes the way God strengthens you because he meets you. He meets you in your need. I'm going to close with an illustration from the late Tim Keller. Uh, he wrote a book on prayer, and he cites a time in his life uh, when he was ministering in New York City. This was right after 9-11, the attacks in New York City, and his congregation was distraught. He describes it as a corporate depression uh, befalling the city and defiling his church. And right around the same time, his wife, Kathy, was battling Crohn's disease. And right at that time, he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And he says, in the midst of all of this weakness, they realized they needed nothing more than to pray. And this is what his wife, Kathy, said to him. 
Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it, miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. Well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it just slip our minds. Friends, adopting the five postures of being a child, a servant, a beggar, a sinner, and a wonder helps you realize how needy and dependent on God you are. And when these realities grip your heart, you come to see how necessary prayer is. It becomes like taking that pill every night to stave off death. And so the urgency and the desperation with which you pray, you do it. Not because God needs you to pray. You do it because you need you to pray. It's my hope, it's my prayer that you might discover your great need and dependence upon God to find that praying becomes like spiritual breathing and that without it, you cannot live another day. Would you bow your heads?